This is Archive Atlanta, episode 47, Woodier Mill Village. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey guys, happy Friday. If I gave you two words, Atlanta and Milltown, and asked you the first thing that came to mind, I expect for most people it's going to be Cabbage Town. And for good reason, right? It's a really popular neighborhood has a lot of historic housing stock to show us, and it's next to other popular neighborhoods. But this week, I'm going to tell you about Atlanta's other mill town, tucked away at the edge of the city limits on the banks of the Chattahoochee River. This is a story of northern business, women in power, southern labor, and how preservation can give us insights into life over a century ago. Lately, you see the phrase hidden gem thrown around a lot, usually when describing a place that comprises a racial minority that has been, quote, forgotten about by white people. That is another soapbox for another day. If you're going to use Hidden Gem, though, I think that Whittier Mill is the right place to do so. It's not a neighborhood that you can really pass by or notice on your way to somewhere else. Getting there has to be deliberate. You're going to pass kind of an industrial area. You cross a set of railroad tracks. And eventually you start assuming this is where they dump the bodies. Like, this is not where I'm supposed to be. But with patience, the factory houses emerge, along with the best city of Atlanta park that most people have never heard of. This is Whittier Mill Village. I want to start today talking about cotton. Why cotton? Because we're in the South, where, quote-unquote, cotton is king, or so the saying goes. Way back in 1732, Georgia becomes the 13th colony with a ban on slavery. The cash crop at the time was rice, and rice fields dominated the coast. It only took 20 years for colonists to realize that profit margins were a lot higher when your labor was free. And so the slavery ban was revoked. The average lifespan of a rice field worker was extremely short. Heat stroke and injuries killed many, but that's if you survived alligator snakes and disease-carrying mosquitoes. Just seven miles outside of Savannah, the state of Georgia had given a rice plantation to a northern war hero named Nathaniel Green. Now, Nathaniel didn't have a lot of time to enjoy his stay because his northern blood just couldn't really handle the southern heat. He died of sunstroke just a year later in 1786. So now his wife is tasked with running this plantation and the home, and she hires a Yale graduate and amateur inventor as a tutor for her children. This man's name was Eli Whitney. I know some bells are going off. I think we learned this probably in elementary school. But Eli Whitney would patent the cotton gin in 1793. So the cotton gin's impact was enormous and devastating. The yields of raw cotton doubled each decade after 1800. And by mid-century, so 1850, America is growing three quarters of the entire world's supply of cotton. Cotton mills did not just exist below the Mason-Dixon line, and the North had its share. But what started to happen was that these Yankee mills were relocating or opening branches down south. Reasons were very clear. Here, they did not have to deal with labor unions, strikes, pro-labor legislation, child labor laws, or compulsory education laws. So workers were plentiful, young, and cheaper, and it actually saved them about two cents per pound of cotton. Also, the mills could be located right by the source, the cotton field, thereby saving freight and fuel charges. 
An article from 1895 claims that five mills were looking to open branches in the South, one of them being Whittier Mill. Moses Whittier was born in New Hampshire and grew up on the family farm. At 18, he moved to Maine and became a machinist and a jeweler. By 1825, he had accepted a position as superintendent of a cotton mill in Winthrop, Maine. He would work for four years before moving to Lowell, Massachusetts, where he went to work for Mary Mac Mills and then eventually uh, Boot Cotton Mills. So just like some of us do today with our side hustles, Whittier actually started his own small operation in 1852, but he continued working at Boot until 1865. He then left to focus solely on his own company. Moses only had one son, Henry, who was born in 1833. So after Henry worked two decades at an insurance firm in Boston, he finally joined the family business. And together, father and son would run the firm as Moses Whittier and Son. And in 1875, Moses would retire, leaving Henry as a sole proprietor. Henry had a sister, though. Her name was Helen, and Helen was very active in women's club, um, an early kind of progressive club history in Lowell and the Boston area. Talked a little bit about that in the um, Atlanta Women's Club episode. When Henry fell ill in 1888, she stepped in to help with the business. And in that same year, Henry would die. With no male siblings, it would be Helen that would take control of the firm. And this makes her one of the first and very, very few women controlling a cotton mill in the late 1880s. And she would do it for 15 years, operating not only a mill in Massachusetts, but overseeing construction of this new mill in Georgia. It's important to understand what's happening in Georgia from the end of the war, so like 1865 to 1895 when Whittier Mill comes down. For 30 years, the idea of the New South was being pushed. With the end of the slave labor system, um, the South's economy was crippled and it was kind of highlighted how behind we were industrially from the rest of the nation. The expositions and the fairs that I've mentioned in previous episodes were so important because civic leaders were essentially selling Atlanta. Whether it be cheap labor, no unions, good weather, whatever. We wanted manufacturing to come to the city whatever it took. Whittier Cotton Mills came south to scout for a new location, and of all the southern states, Georgia was chosen as the best spot. In 1895, they had already begun initial construction on the banks of the Chattahoochee River. The same year, Piedmont Park hosts the 1895 Cotton States and International Exposition. Within one of these long-lost buildings was a meeting of the New England Manufacturers Association, and this is the first time that this group met outside of the North. 33 delegates sat and listened to the mayor of Atlanta, Porter King, speak. King goes on to welcome them, and then he says, quote, Cotton was no longer king, but a servant, not a tyrant, but a subject, end quote. And also that cotton mills belong next to the fields. He tells them all that Whittier Cotton Mills was already being constructed just outside of the city. Sort of like a, see, I told you, you know, you guys should get on this as quick as you can. By the time of this construction, the Whittier name and officers were more symbolic. So the main interests of the mill were owned by a man named Paul Butler and other investors. But Helen was very much acting as president um, and had the title of president. Nelson Whittier was a treasurer, and then Nelson's son, his name was Walter Rufus uh, Whittier, but they called him Boss. Boss was acting as manager of the mill. 
The site down here was chosen for various reasons, mainly because it was served by the Southern Railroad, so that would bring in your raw product, as well as the electric streetcar that ran every 30 minutes, which connected it to faraway Atlanta. Construction began in May of 1895, and it was completed in under one year at a cost of $180,000. That amount today would be $5.5 million, so this was a huge deal. Now, what many people don't know is that Whittier Cotton Mill was a neighbor and partner to another infamous enterprise, Chattahoochee Brick. If you have not yet listened to episode 35, make sure you put that on your list. This is really important history to share. I won't get into it too much here. Um, But G.W. Parrott, he was the vice president of Chattahoochee Brick, negotiated an arrangement between the two operations. The brick plant was going to sell 30 acres of land to Whittier, um, along with an existing manager's cottage, and then they would build a 40,000 square foot cotton mill building, a warehouse, a storehouse, and 30 cottages for the mill workers. Whittier Mill would supply half the operations equipment from Massachusetts, and then half would be new. And for this work, Chattahoochee Brick would get $2,500 in cash, but also $50,000 in Whittier Mill stock. Opening day was a cold January of 1896. What I love is that Helen was there to push the button that revved up the factory engines. And the headlines of the newspapers read, quote, With a woman's hand, 10,000 spindles were set in motion, end quote. This was bringing jobs to 300 people and producing 90,000 pounds of yarn each month. So it was a really big deal for the city. They had so many varieties of yarn, varying quantities. Um, They had different names for sizes. So what they called twos were used for window cords and what they called forties were the finest um, cotton filaments. They also made gloves, mittens, braiders yarn, druggist twine, um, and their specialty and market stronghold was the yarn that wrapped fire hoses. What makes Whittier Mill and Mill Villages so fascinating is the complete control the company had over design, housing, and services in these neighborhoods. There's a really popular podcast that just came out uh, that I've been listening to called Nice Try. Uh, I think it's from Curbed or associated with Curbed. But it's the history of Atlanta's attempts at utopias. The idea of utopias and planned communities continues to fascinate us all. So not saying that a mill town is a utopia or was, but it has that same kind of creepy quality, you know? Like, they set out to create a bubble that was completely self-sufficient that was going to, in a sense, make these people's lives better. Worker housing in Whittier Mill started in a row closest to the factory building, and then as homes went further up the hill, you would see larger homes, typically those were for overseers or superintendents. The Whittier family homes were at the top of the hill, so to speak, so right as you enter the neighborhood now um, on Parrot Avenue and Spad Avenue, the largest and main Whittier home was nicknamed Hedgerows. It, of course, is no longer with us. There are supposed to be two remaining Whittier family homes, and it's hard for me to tell because the houses look very new or very renovated, so I'm not sure if, you know, a lot of times these historic nominations were written in 2001 or 2002, so I'm not sure what has been lost since then or maybe what has been renovated. By the year 1900, the census lists 635 people working at the Whittier Cotton Mill. 
211 were weavers, 135 spinners, 60 spoolers, 48 doffers, which is somebody that removes the bobbins from the frame and puts a new one in, uh, 29 carters, that's someone who detangles the fibers, 23 speeders, someone who twists strands together, and 20 drawers, which I'm not going to lie, could not figure out what that job entailed. Shifts were 24 hours. There was work being done at all hours of all days. And the company actually preferred to hire unskilled workers and then train them on site, which wasn't exactly common practice. The draw of coming to work at Whittier Mill was accessible housing. Uh, they rented it to workers by the room. It's important to keep in mind that in 1896, living even one mile from work made it almost impossible to get there. The streetcar was brought into this site, but being seven miles from the city limits of Atlanta definitely put limitations on the talent pool. Rooms in the mill houses were locked. You would rent one room at a time. If you go inside the house, if you only needed one room, that's the key that you got. And then as families grew, employees would rent more rooms as needed. Rent included utilities and maintenance and then was taken out of your weekly pay. The Whittiers kept the houses painted, the grass cut, and they did electrical and plumbing work. The community even had a general store, uh, a church, a school, medical facility, so really a little bubble, like I said earlier. A building on the property across from the general store, uh, they called it the Ark, and it had a barber shop, a pharmacy, and men's showers. And the general store actually housed the entire town of Chattahoochee's post office until the area was annexed by the city in 1952. If you listen to the Cabbage Town episode, I spoke in more detail about child labor in the U.S. and Georgia at the time. But to give a brief summary, child labor was rampant, and our state had the most lax laws on the books. Meaning that children as young as 10 were allowed to work in mills and factories. From what I've read, children as young as 7, 8, and 9 worked at Whittier Cotton Mill. But I also read that Helen Whittier was not as into the idea of child labors as much as her peers. I don't know if it's because she was a woman or because she was northern, um, but she used less child labors is what they say. And the company took great strides to provide care and education for their community. In 1910, Boss Whittier partnered with an organization called Sheltering Arms Association of Day Nurseries to manage a settlement house. And a settlement house was part of the general social welfare movement of the turn of the century, but it's a place that had like educational resources, social services, kind of like a community house. Whittier Cotton also had a day nursery, kindergarten classes, night school for adults, there was clubs for boys and girls, social worker meetings for young mothers, and free clinics. In the realm of entertainment, there was a brass band and a really, really popular baseball team. By the mid-1920s, 100 extra rooms were added in the form of 24 new houses. The fun fact that makes Whittier Mill Village so unique is that only three homes were added between those new ones in 1920-something and 1998. Boss Whittier died in 1936, and then the company was taken over by J.P. Stevens. In the 1950s, it is sold to Scottsdale Industries. And then 1952 is when the city of Atlanta finally reaches the old town of Chattahoochee and annexes as part of Atlanta. 
Butler Way, which is a street in the neighborhood, is extended for more homes, but it ends up covering over the old baseball fields. By 1959, the mill sells the homes back to the workers to be owned privately. The mill itself would not close until 1971, laying off 600 workers. That's about 76 years in operation. It was also in the 70s, though, when a group of people, led by Miriam Kaiser, who was actually a grandchild of one of the original mill workers, um, led the charge to have the group buy a bunch of homes and restore them. The mill buildings would sit unused and suffered fire from arsonists, and then by 1998, they're demolished. So guys, this is why preservation is so important. If no one did this work, if no one fought in the 70s to save some of these houses, we wouldn't be talking about this. There would be no episode. I mean, it would be a forgotten footnote in a book somewhere. You know, maybe there'd be new condos. Maybe it just would have been like an overgrown area. But that initial preservation work, even though we've lost the majority of the factory building, when you go there, you'll you'll get the sense that this community looks just as it did, you know, in 1900 or in 1898. So we have great housing stock, um, but there are only two small parts of the mill left. One is very hard to miss. So the brick tower is the centerpiece of Whittier Mill Park. It housed offices and a water tank for protection against fires. And then you have the remains of the machine shop, which are in the corner of the park. Now there's picnic tables inside, and it's a great place to host an event. And like I said earlier, Chattahoochee Brick built this factory and built these buildings. These are made with Chattahoochee Brick, which again, go back and listen to the episode, but these are convict labor bricks. There are several historic structures in the neighborhood that I want to point out, just in case anyone goes to visit. At 2932 Parrot Avenue is the original dry goods store from 1896. The mill operated the store until 1937. It was then sold to a private family, but they also continued to to run it as a store. Now, if you Google the address, uh, you can find some older listing photos when it was on sale. I highly recommend this because it's amazing inside. It, it's hard to explain, but it has the layout and the furniture pieces from the store days. So they did a really great job keeping the integrity as much as they could. Directly across the street at 1952 Whittier Avenue is that building from 1897. I think that that's what they called the Ark. So it was a commercial building by the factory. And now it's broken up into different units for people to live in. When you're traveling down Bolton Road, there is a grand stone church on your right. That was built in 1942, but the congregation dates to 1881. Before the mill even got to that little town of Chattahoochee, Antioch Baptist was a one-room building about a mile away. Um, Later, it moves to Moores Mill and Howell Mill Roads, but this was really far for Whittier Mill residents. I mean, I feel like it's far now, but when you didn't have a car, it was even further. So in 1897 a select group of congregants form their own church. They call themselves New Antioch Baptist. It would be Harry English, son of James English, who donated the land that the current church sits on today. Originally, it was a small wood frame building, but the stone structure you see today was dedicated in 1942. And the last building I mentioned was um, the Community Health Center from 1948. So this is at 1966 Tribble Drive. It was recently sold, or maybe a few years ago, as a private home. It's so unique. 
has like an early mid-century quirk. Um, you could see that it was definitely like a, a health center or some kind of commercial. And now it's a house. You know, my love of mid-century. So this is one of my favorite buildings in the neighborhood. So there you have it. The story of Whittier Mill Village, one of the true hidden gems of Atlanta. I hope that the neighbors don't hate me for giving up their secret, but it's an amazing neighborhood. Like I said earlier, one of my favorite public parks is here. If you have not been, please go. And if you do, take some photos and share them with me. Remember to hashtag Archive Atlanta. Thank you all for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating or a review. And remember to visit Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Archive Atlanta. Um, I've already released one mini episode and there is one more coming before the end of the month. Hope everyone has a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week.